I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison, and today we're talking about the ongoing scientific revolution in golf. My guest is Will Haskett, a broadcaster you might have heard on PGA Tour Radio and formerly on his podcast, The Perfect Number. Will is also a writer. His book is called The Science of Golf, and it covers topics like launch monitor technology, strokes gained analytics, advances in agronomy, etc., and it discusses how these innovations have made the modern game what it is, for better or for worse. It's a really, really good read, even for an admitted science idiot like me. Now, in addition to getting Will's book, make sure to check out the Fried Egg Pro Shop. It's at proshop.thefriedegg.com. Right now, we have new stuff in our print shop, specifically some cool shots of Muirfield in Scotland and Sandhills Golf Club in Nebraska. You can get prints on metal, on canvas, or just on plain old photo paper. All that and more at ProShop.TheFriedEgg.com. All right, Will Haskett, you are a man of many talents. Uh, Today we're talking about your book, The Science of Golf, and we'll get to that. But you have just wrapped up doing a broadcast. Uh, Yeah, my... I'm a sports broadcaster, first, second, and third. So let's not throw the author category into it. We'll get into maybe how the book came to be. But yeah, first and foremost, I'm a sports broadcaster and predominantly now in golf. So yeah, I'm approaching 10 years now on PGA Tour Radio, a little PGA Tour Live. Um, Helped the LPGA launch feature groups for the first time this year, which is kind of exciting. So hoping that that grows a little bit more for the ladies side of it. But yes, I am predominantly a play-by-play guy in trade, in heart, in every single way, shape, and form. You have that broadcaster's voice and polish, and and so that's that's much appreciated. And you have a nice little home setup from which you broadcast. So are you primarily doing your work from from home these days? Has that been uh, something that you've done since the pandemic or before? Yeah, I don't know how much I'm allowed to pull back the curtain without violating contracts and everything like this. But I think at this okay. point in time, it's pretty safe uh, to say that. Our, so our crew on PJ Tour Radio, it's a host and an analyst. And there are three guys that are calling golf shots. And several years ago, all three of those guys were on the golf course. And then for budgetary reasons and a number of different reasons, it went to a more sort of not re- fully remote model, but two guys are still walking in the fairways every week on the PGA Tour. And another guy is sort of your tower announcer, right? Somebody who's able to kind of bop around and see different shots. And that can be done from anywhere, whether it's in studio or wherever it might be. And then the pandemic forced pretty much the entire industry into this remote setup. And so I have colleagues in the industry for two years that were calling all their basketball games on ESPN from their basements, you know, and they were having the remote kit. So we're still in sort of that same mode. So yes, there is a component where a third of the guys that are calling golf shots are at home. So it works out to about a third of my work during the year on PGA Tour Radio is from my home studio. Um, And as you will obviously recognize as a father of young children. Um, it has super perks. So I'm very much appreciative of it. I'm 41 and I'm still the youngest 
member of the broadcast team on BGA Tour Radio in a sport that skews a little bit older. So I do not mind uh, being home a few extra times a year where I can get off the air and go upstairs and have dinner with the kids. Listen, to be clear, it has its perks, but yes. it also has its drawbacks. Yes. If I was only <laughs> here, it, I wouldn't, uh, it would drive me crazy. Like you have to be able to go out and have the relationships and see the shots and, and feel the air and, and all those things that come with it. And without that context, it makes it really hard to do this job. If you just threw somebody into doing it from home and they're calling it off of a little monitor, you lose so much of the stories of the players and what they're working on. And a perfect example, I was in Bermuda last year. I got wind and rain blasted on the weekend by what felt like a tropical storm. And so I know the contours of the greens. I know where the guys are trying to aim it and hit it off the tee. So having that built in makes it way easier. If I'd never seen the the footprint or never been to the golf course and I'm calling it from home, it's really, really difficult. And so then you keep it so simple that I feel like it's a disservice to the audience. So I think we have a really good crew with a lot of experienced guys to where those people who are at home in this sort of new world that we live in, in this remote model can still provide all the same context and to be honest, sometimes I'm driving around listening to my own peers and I know the schedule, Garrett, and I'll be listening. I'll be like, wait a second, who's not there? I can't tell. And if I can't tell, then I know the audience can't tell. So I think we're doing a pretty good job of it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really enjoy the calls on PGA Tour Radio, which is where you do quite a bit of work, right? Yeah, most of it. Um, yeah. in, in addition to uh, some work on, on, on camera as well. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, you know, the, the narration that you get on PGA Tour Radio is often something that I prefer to listen to. Um, you know, the broadcast obviously is, is the number one thing. The television broadcast is, sure. is what you want to see since golf is a visual sport. But I often feel like with PGA Tour Radio that the commentary really does bring it alive in a nice way. And, and so it's a, it's a good thing to do to kind of mix up your golf consumption. You know, yeah. if, uh, if people have, have never listened to a PGA Tour radio broadcast and you like following PGA Tour events, it's, it's kind of a good way to do it. If you love golf, it's a great product. If you don't like golf, it probably will help you sleep a little bit. So I always say there's two benefits to everybody that's out there. We do call a lot of golf shots. So I think that's one of our number one things we hear from a lot of people is we get a, we, we squeeze a lot of golf shots into our broadcast. It's pretty fast-paced. But every single shot then requires discussion and conversation, where in a visual medium, you don't have to necessarily do that. And so you can sort of lose some of the storytelling and contextual elements of of broadcasting it. And you can then squeeze in more sponsored elements or whatever it might sort of be. But we're always sort of breaking down lie, angle, what it's going to take, then reacting to what that is. And I think that we've also embraced advanced statistics a little bit more in our medium than in other places. So you can say, hey, this guy's ranked wherever this might be, or here's the, the shot probability of this, depending on who the analyst is that week. Some of our analysts have embraced that. Some of our analysts are a little more old school. But some of our younger analysts, you know, guys that are waiting to turn 50, I think have embraced a lot of those numbers. And then it allows us to tell those stories a little bit more and and this is probably a good segue point, but that certainly lights me up a little bit because I'm definitely the stat geek of, of all the play-by-play guys that we have calling golf shots on PGA Tour Radio. Yeah, I think stat geek would be sort of underselling it at this point. Oh, really? Uh, okay, you are you. now the author of The Science of Golf. So uh, you, you have ascended to the status, I think, of geek lord at, oh, at this point. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Is, is, geek, is that like a, an official title? I, I don't sure. really know. Sure. I'll, I'll wear it I'm, with pride. As a, you know, I, I feel like I'm a... <laughs> I'm 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 trending towards geek lorddom in in certain areas of my life, and I hope eventually to get there. But I think that writing a book is uh, really the the big accomplishment in that vein. Um, it is a, a fascinating book to read, and we're going to kind of dive deep into it in this podcast. So, you know, first off, 
the science in golf is a big, big subject. Huge. As I'm sure you discovered when you started to conceptualize this book. So how did you eventually settle on a focus for yeah. this book? You know, what? how did you decide what to cover and what not to cover? Yeah, and in the interest of full disclosure here, I was contracted and hired by the publisher to write this book. Like, it was titled for me. There's a science of... Of series, yes. So yeah. there's, a, there's a science of football, basketball, hockey is coming out next year. I help network and find a person to do that. There's a science of Harry Potter. I mean, if we want to go full geekdom, I mean, they've had science of books on things that have nothing to do with actual sport. And I love the idea of a science of series in sport. And then especially when it gets to golf, and I even mentioned it in the book, John McPhee, who's one of the the key guys I interviewed, he's a professor up in Canada, and he had the nugget that I'd never heard before that, you know, in golf, there are twice as many patents in the world of golf as all other sports combined, not any other sport, like twice as many patents just in golf as in all other sports. And that makes sense when you think about all the equipment and different golf balls and things that you would actually have patents on. But it's it's about as scientific of a sport as possible. So um, you know, to to not bore the listeners too much on this one, and you were a guest on my previous podcast, The Perfect Number, which is not dead, but hasn't been active for a couple of years. And I literally decided to stop doing that podcast. And the day after I decided independently to shut it down, I was approached to write this book. And I just sort of felt like, okay, this is a sign. Like, I, I, this is definitely the project I need to take on now. And a lot of people, you included, were subjects of the podcast that then made their way into this book because I had this four-year run of interviewing people in not just the data community, but across the entire spectrum of a lot of things that we covered. So to answer your question in a long-winded way, when they approached me to write this book, I knew I had the stuff. It was really a question of how broad do I want this book to be and how specific do I want this book to be? And you and I were talking before we hit record, as I really thought that I was going to be able to do something and put my stamp on the game, right? Like, oh my gosh, like Will Haskett discovered this something scientific. And then the more I started finding the, the people I needed to fill all the gaps, I realized how dumb I truly am at understanding the main, like all of the little details. Like I understand the main concepts, but the little details I had no clue about. And so then it really turned into a book of, okay, what is every single aspect of golf that I think has science in it? And then let's touch them all. And that's really what the book became. And so it's 10 chapters, the 10th chapter being really looking forward into the future. And the other nine really cover it all. And then it was really kind of a... I always want to write a narrative type of book. And this is very much a more technical book than I thought the initial book that I would ever write. And so then it was, how can I tie all these chapters together? How do I prioritize them? What I think is actually the proper order, like what do I lead with? And then anecdotally is really where I went to is like, how can I then use my experience of a decade on the PGA tour and taking a lot of those main stories and tying them into the scientific revolution that we've seen over the last quarter century? And you really do focus on the scientific revolution of the past quarter century because there has been science in golf going back to sure. basically golf's beginnings, right? The feathery ball was a scientific advance from the wooden balls that preceded it or the rocks, right? Yes. But certainly over the past couple of decades, there has been an acceleration in the different areas of the game in which science has made its way. And your book really does dig into those. And so just to give people an idea, you said 10 chapters. The last one is on the future. I, I want to give people a quick overview of what those chapters are about. Yep. So chapter one is about 
you know, launch monitors, essentially. It's about contact with the golf ball. Chapter two is body in motion. It's about kind of physiology of the game. Chapter three, powertrain. That's about distance in the game. Six inches is chapter four. That's about the neuroscience, right, of, of golf. Yep. Chapter five is data and decisions, which is essentially about strokes, gain, statistics. Chapter six, technology of the ball. Chapter seven, technology of clubs. Chapter eight, technology of putting. And chapter nine, the playing field, which is about the science of agronomy. Yep. And I actually didn't expect to happen upon a chapter about the science of agronomy, but I was delighted to because that is obviously a major area that has affected the game where there have been significant scientific innovations in recent years that have really changed the way we play golf at all levels in ways that are pretty profound Mm -hmm. and that are hard sometimes for people to notice. So really cool to see that subject come up, but I wanted to start with the, with chapter one, with contact. I want to dig into like a couple of particular topics here. We're not we're not going to cover the full range of of topics. No, please buy you, the book, people. Please buy the uh, yeah, book. Yeah, exactly. Guys. So we're not going <laughs> to we're not going to give away the whole book here. We want to leave some surprises for people. But there were a couple of subjects that I I thought were particularly fascinating to me personally. And the first one would be the advent of the launch monitor. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that this is one of the most important stories in golf in this century, at least, and and one that. You know, in order to understand where the modern game is, you really have to understand the launch monitor. So maybe we could start by just you telling me the story of how the launch monitor was invented and, you know, what it did that was different. Yeah. And this is where I got to a book where I didn't want to, I hope that there was no opinion that came out of this book. You know, I wanted it to be straightforward like this is what the science is. Now my personal opinion this is why the chapters are ordered their way is that if I if I were to say there's one single most significant scientific advancement in the entire history of the game of golf, I think it is the launch monitor. I think wow. how it has changed and maybe that's maybe that's more for the professional game which is probably where I find myself more often, but even I mean, I just think about how the little ways that it's come into my game, what it's meant from a club fitting standpoint in my own personal game or other people's sort of games. So to answer your question, and that's why I led with it, because I think the launch monitor has changed how the game is taught. It's changed how the game is played, especially at the highest level. And I think it's had this profound impact. The idea of ballistic technology and anything that tracks motion in a ballistic way has existed for much longer than TrackMan and FlightScope have had the technology. It goes back to really the the 1980s. So you're talking about the height of the Cold War. Everybody is stocking up missiles. We got to figure out how we're going to be tracking those missiles. And so there's a huge technological advancement and all of that stuff so that effectively the military is contracting with military contractors to build ways to track a missile in flight. And so you're talking about high-speed projectile objects and being able to determine to an nth degree how fast they're traveling, where they're going to go, what that trajectory, everything sort of means. So we already had the technology built in to follow these objects as they're taking off or being shot off wherever they were. All we had to do is just configure that into a sports space. I think baseball got to it a little bit earlier than golf did. Most of the sport ones, you know, they found guys because of pitchers, right? So how is that ball coming out? They're measuring spin rate. They're measuring how that ball tracks. So the reason why you probably saw the advent of K-Zone and everything that you track and see on TV is 
even before you really saw TrackMan and Tracer and Golf World, just happens to be that baseball embraced that technology first. And I'll shout out my guy, Will Carroll, who has the science of baseball out, and you can read about it. And I'm sure that, you know, it's a lot of the same stuff that's in there. Um, and so, yeah, eventually it's like, okay, we can monetize this in the athletic space. And maybe it's teachers first, but then it becomes consumers second. And now you have every single high-level professional golfer walking around with ten to $25,000 worth of equipment, and they're lugging them through airports, and you'll see them. It's like the mini briefcase, right? I mean, the golfers now on the PGA Tour have a briefcase, and it's carrying their launch monitor. And it's completely changed everything because now instead of looking up and trying to figure out what the ball is doing, you can look down and it'll tell you exactly what the ball is doing and you can tailor everything backwards. So it effectively, and this is what chapter one is about, it reverse engineered the entire process of how we look at causation in the world of golf. And that's why I think it's the most significant because it's provided absolute data while in my opinion, also Garrett exploding the art, the artistry of golf. I, I contend that golf can be as artistic as it ever was because we can just prove that what you're doing works with a launch monitor as opposed to in the past saying you have to build a swing a certain way to make it work this way. And that's that's kind of where chapter one went with it all. So that claim that you're making at the end, I, I want to get back to that. But just to just to clarify, what you're saying is that launch monitors allowed people essentially to swing their swings golfers Correct. to swing their swings as yes. long as the ball as long as was it's optimized. doing yeah what, yeah what what they want it to do you can you can swing like matthew wolf or you can swing yes. like ernie Els as long as the numbers that the ball is producing on on that launch monitor are are good right, right? yep um okay so why don't we get to first some some kind of nuts and bolts of what launch monitors revealed about what the golf ball was doing. What were some of the key insights that launch monitors provided that, you know, people weren't aware of before that, that even experts or instructors weren't aware of before? Yeah. I mean, obviously we didn't know how fast the ball was spinning. You just looked up and it, it was windows, right? So this ball was a little bit too spinny and just anecdotally it went up a little bit too high in the air. Well, now we can look at apexes and we can look at you know what is the optimized sort of shot flight for these particular shots we can look at what we want spin rates to be and so while a lot of this stuff has sort of been boiled down into we know that now off the driver we want to have as little spin as possible we want to have a dialed in amount of spin for our middle irons all the way through the wedges it allowed those guys to actually take the windows that they were trying to visualize and really dial into where maybe some guys were thinking okay if my spin rate can still spin in at this, but at a little bit lower trajectory, I can still get the same distance and I can still get the same result. And so it was sort of, I guess it was maybe validating some of those windows. So spin rate was a big part of it. And then also kind of the path relationship, right? So in the book, we go into a lot about how there was old laws in terms of how the ball flew based off of the what they, we thought was contact or what we thought was the path of the club. And the launch monitors pretty much defined exactly what causes a ball to hook or slice. And so it, it all has to do with the relationship between the face angle at impact and the path of that club in relation to the straight target line. And it's universal. So you could technically cast the club way outside. And this is where Garrett, someone who's a teacher, I'm not a good swing instructor. So I, I sometimes get a little <laughs> bit confused trying to discuss this myself. But effectively what it means is if the ball the ball will always hook as long as for a right-handed golfer, the face is closed in an angle to its path. 
if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So you could technically have a path that is so far out and cutting across the ball, but if that face is still closed to that path, that ball is going to hook. It'll go so even farther. It'll left. go even farther <laughs> yeah. left. You're you're absolutely right, and so and so that was I think a huge part of it is that now a lot of modern instructors are able to look at that data and they and so instead of saying oh this guy has a swing that's going to always hit a slice well I mean what's his hand doing at impact like what is contact where are his contact conditions like with how he strikes the ball how the hands go through so those are the two big ones is that we really started to optimize what spin looked like on the golf ball because spin is is widely important to the game it's what makes the ball fly in the first place and so it really locked in what optimization is of spin and then it really defined that a hundred percent guarantee of that face-to-path relationship defining how the ball is going to travel in the air. Now, tell me if I'm right or wrong about this, but I feel like the launch monitor also crystallized what the formula for distance off the tee is, which is high launch and low spin. And maybe people were aware of this before because it's just sort of a simple scientific fact about the golf ball. But it just seems like since the introduction of the launch monitor that we have been even more confident as golfers, as golf instructors, that high launch, low spin is the way to go. Yeah. This one's really hard for me to answer, Garrett, because the advent of launch monitor usage by teachers almost exactly coincides with the advent of modern driver and ball technology. Right. And so, yes, is the answer, but... I haven't read a, a perfect study to say if we went back and you built a balada ball with a persimmon wood, if that necessarily is the right contact condition. What I will contend is if you put a guy in a range with a bag full of 100 baladas and his persimmon and a whole bunch of other persimmons, it's going to be way easier for us to figure out the right combination of ball and driver to maximize what that looks like. But I don't know if it's an absolute truth because, again, the technology was creating a completely different relationship. I think we could tune. I think we could definitely dial it in a little bit better. I think if you just took only launch monitors and there was no equipment changes whatsoever over the last thirty-five years, forty years. I know many in your audience, the ears perk up. Like if we if we rolled the ball back and we rolled the clubs all the way back, but we still had launch monitors, the ball is going to go significantly farther for the guys on tour and even for the average player because we now have this ability to really dial it in with the launch monitors. Um, but I don't know if we get that 100% assuredness. But the combination of it with modern equipment has made that absolutely clear. And then couple it with advanced statistics telling us that longer is better. Like laying up is is never – the well, not never – but laying up is not the right play most of the time, especially for higher handicap type of players. Um, we live in the send it, you know, um, world right now. So I think all of that kind of couples into some of the things when it comes to distance. Um, so I'm not going to say it's a hundred percent that that's it with old equipment, but I think that where we are with modern equipment, it has made that yes, crystallized from what launch monitors teach us. It is interesting that the launch monitor came about right when, essentially, when the Pro V1 and the modern driver came yes. about. Right? These were it's these were concurrent, you know, uh, uh, happenings in uh, in the world of golf, and and they all added up to 
a, a big change, a sea change in, in how the game and, was played. And at least Tiger at the and money in the sport right. and all this other yes. stuff. I mean, again, like it's, it's a perfect storm. Like when I say the last 25 years, like it's truly a perfect storm of all of these things at the same time. And that's why it's we're in this fascinating era where it's it it's hard for us to put the toothpaste back in the tube because it came out flying there for the last quarter century. Well, there was no way that any governing body could have possibly uh, kept up everything with, with from what every was happening. angle. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what are you supposed to do? Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. it's it's incredible. Yeah, and you and I have had this conversation too, and we're not going to get in every chapter, so I don't know if we'll spend much time in chapter three, which is pretty much all about physical fitness and nutrition. But like, that's an extra three, four, five, six, ten percent, depending on the type of golfer, of stuff that we're still learning. I mean, we're still kind of behind in even having scientific studies proving that what the modern trainers are doing right now, this very day, but we know it's better than it was 15, 20 years ago. And so that's a hu- another huge difference where, I mean, who knows if we had obsolete equipment, but these guys were training with the speed that they are and how they're using their bodies, how different it would be. So again, all of this stuff and Tiger influenced that, like Tiger made working out cool in golf and necessary. And it's, it's wild. It all happened at the same time. And boom, here we are. So let me throw something at you that is sort of a counter argument against this idea that the launch monitor enhanced the artistry of the golf swing. I mean, I hear, I hear that argument like that any, any number of golf swings can end up producing these ideal numbers. And that's, that's a truth, right? That's something that instructors are emphasizing less now is kind of the aesthetics of the golf swing and having things proper, right? They, they're just looking at what the ball is doing and, and that, freeze certain players up to be eccentric in in a way. And, and that, that is, I, I find that really welcome, but I wonder if you have ever uh, felt nostalgic like I do for a time when players had to battle more with doubt when it came to their swings, right? Because back in the seventies, eighties and nineties, one huge fact of a professional golfer's life was just trying to dig it out of the dirt, was trying to find some kind of magical solution to what was ailing them in their golf swing. And there was a lot of kind of, you know, psychological struggle. And there were even like these mystical elements to how players would try to find what would cure them, right? There's this, I I think of Ben Hogan's secret, right? It almost took on this, this kind of, mythical status over time. He found the secret to his golf swing. Turns out it was something pretty technical about his grip and his, you know, club path and and stuff like that. And I'm sure you could boil it down to science now, but for a long time, golfers had to deal in that kind of ambiguous realm of doubt about their golf swings. And that was something that I found interesting about the game, found fun to think about, found fun to write about it attracted kind of these neurotic characters to the game who were who were fun to follow. Now, it seems like with the launch monitor that young players have a lot more confidence in what they're doing and have mm-hmm. this kind of serene sense of of comfort that, you know, what they're doing is the right thing and if they get off track then they kind of know how to solve it. How how would you respond to that? Yeah, I think it's a great point. Um I love the romanticizing of that um i guess that fear right the misery that, yes the <laughs> yeah, misery of it maybe i shouldn't be romanticizing it but it's you know i mean it, it is what it is yeah my counter to it is i mean i was a junior player that didn't have access to this because i came up 
I mean, I'm almost I'm a couple years younger than Tiger, so it wasn't as if I was playing in my formative years and all of this stuff was already available, right? So, you know, in my first years, and I was a club pro a couple of years out of college, and that was when the Pro V1 had just come out. So again, like all of the stuff was kind of right before it for me, and I was experiencing this you know, as it came to be. And I wish I was 10 years younger and seeing what my game would have been like if this was just sort of the commonplace of it all. But what I will say about what I've seen from modern players and a lot of the college golf that I've covered and then seeing these young guys have such success at the professional ranks and where I still think I have what you're looking for is that they get so good so quickly because of all of this that then when the first little thing goes wrong, that to me becomes the fascinating part. So to where it's like guys were grinding and struggling and going through the agony and the misery of finding that swing, finding the swing that when they eventually get it and they're in their 30s and they finally can put together what they think is perfect golf. Instead, it's guys who actually haven't found all of the secrets yet, but are good enough because of all of this stuff who then have to go through that lean discovery, the putt stop going in. Hmm. You know, you're Colin Morikawa and you have two months where all of a sudden the ball just doesn't fade. Like, why is it not fading? <laughs> that, that's an example that just came to mind when you were talking about this. Yeah. He, 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 all of a sudden, like he came out of college, a perfect ball striker, perfect. but recently he has had some kind of mysterious struggles with, yes. uh, with his ball flight. And I find that just as fascinating. So I think it still exists. That would be my counter argument. It's just, we've, we've turned the timetable of it a little bit more around. And I'll also add this to it. You know, Ben Hogan had the perfect swing, right? I mean, we've got a million videos of it. Everybody wants the Hogan swing. And so we had a generation of teachers who are teaching a certain type of swing. And when I say I think that they're, it, the launch monitor allows more artistry to be the game, what I mean, but I think we're still forcing it back in. I think it, the Matthew Wolfs of the world, like, that's the up and coming because we now have a younger generation of instructors who have only instructed with all of this technology that has flipped and reverse engineered the teaching process to where a lot of that old school, I'm going to teach a guy to grip it one way, to swing it one way, to get it to a certain sort of place. We now have a lot of younger teachers. So I think it's actually going to take time. But, you know, I'm in Vegas a couple of weeks ago, and, and I forget the kid's name from Oklahoma, who plays with the reverse grip, like the left hand low right handed golfer. And it's like, could you imagine that being a thing? Like, there's no way there was an instructor 30 years ago. It's going to let that kid get to the highest levels of college golf playing with left hand, low full swinging shots. But if it's working and that ball's coming off with optimized numbers, they're going to let it sort of go. And so, you know, I think we could go back and nitpick Garrett and say that, you know what? Artists were always the outliers, right? Like for every Lee Trevino, there was five other guys that were on tour that were swinging it beautifully and in tempo and upright, because let's be honest, like there's probably one way that's, the best for getting those optimized numbers. I just like the fact, or I believe that we have the technology now that keeps a young Lee Trevino, a young Matthew Wolf, a young Bubba Watson, even more engaged with what he is doing and feeling comfortable than maybe we did 20, 30 years ago. But that's my, that's my opinion out of it. And I tried not to write that into the book as much as it was just, Hey, a lot of instructors are recognizing we can now teach from contact backwards instead of swing forwards, which is where the uh, which is where instruction has gone. All right. Well, why don't we talk about uh, another topic here, which you cover in chapter five of the book, and this is the advent of strokes gained analytics. 
And this is another kind of huge shift in how people think about the game and how the different skill areas of the game relate to success on the golf course. Um, So how and why did Strokes Gained get created? What's the story behind that? Yeah. So, I mean, Mark Brody is is the founder of the Strokes Gained system. The idea of of shots gained has been around golf for 40, 50 years. But then in terms of actually getting baseline measurements and numbers and data, and then looking at it across the board, it was Mark partnering with the PGA Tour and then sort of building out this sort of project that then creates what a strokes gain system looks like. And that's why now today you have baselines for every handicap and data tracking places like Arcos or any other that number ones can actually do have millions of data points now to where you can have strokes gain data for yourself or you can compare yourself to other 5, 10, 15, 20 handicappers. But the idea of strokes gained is is really just where in your game are you average, above average, below average in comparison to what your score is? And so golf is this tapestry of a million things that happen that lead to a score. And yet somehow, if you and I are playing a match or and we're going head-to-head in strokes and you and I both shoot 77 and we're like, oh, well, we had the exact same day today. Well, we know that's not true. You know, in I don't know if there's any other sport where you can have as different of a path to the final outcome of two competitors than anything. I mean, I guess a basketball game where one team, the, the Warriors reign 25 threes against a team that posts up and shoots 50 free throws and doesn't hit a three. I mean, I guess there's multiple ways to a score in basketball or in football or any other sort of sport. But in golf, like I could miss every fairway and scramble my butt off and you could just be an absolute Fred Funk driving machine and two putt every green or something like that. And we arrive at the same sort of place. And so what strokes gained has done is it obviously boils it down to where are you efficient or deficient in all of those areas T to green. And it really started with measuring from a baseline of putting and kind of working backwards and then using those baselines. Well, actually it starts, excuse me, from average score in a hole. So if you play the first hole at your club 10 times, your average score is never going to be a round number mostly. You know, it's going to be, if it's a par four, maybe your average score there is 4.3 over that. Well, if that's your baseline and you make four, that's a good hole, right? Over the course of 10 rounds. So then putting that into perspective and then diving into that number even deeper and understanding how did you arrive at those four shots? Were you more efficient off the tee or not? And then looking for trends. And then obviously what I do on a more weekly basis is then using those incredible data trends for PGA Tour players and and comparing their strengths and weaknesses across the field to where you can talk about, um, you know, Rory McIlroy's rise again to the top player in the game. And he was a top 20 putter last year on the PGA Tour, a top 25 putter on the PGA Tour. Like no one talk, we always talk about his driving, but the dude gained five tenths of a shot on the field every round with his putter. I mean, if Rory is a half shot around guy on the greens, it's ball game. I mean, it's ball. I mean, it's, oh, I mean, that's an incredible number for him. And we now understand why that's important for somebody who's always going to gain a shot per round off the tee because of how good he is with the driver in his bag. And so those are the little ways that I think it's revolutionized. And I'm sorry, that was a really long-winded answer to that question. I, I don't think there's any short way to describe strokes no, game. it's but, hard. But you did, you did a very nice job there. And, and just to underline its importance to how we understand what's happening on the golf course, in a previous era, we would have looked at Rory McIlroy's season and just 
kind of tried to come up with some explanation using our eyes about what happened this season and why he was so good. Yep. But now that strokes gained exists, we can kind of look at these different scale areas and help ourselves tell a story about an accurate story about what happened this season. And sometimes we find out, you know, surprising things like he had a great putting season. We don't necessarily think of Rory McIlroy as an elite putter, but if he's top 20 strokes gained putting, then we know that he was operating at a very, very high level on the greens this season. And so, uh, you know, that is what strokes gained has, has essentially done for us. And it's, it's been a big deal now in your chapter data and decisions on strokes gained, you identified three big learnings from this new area of, of analytics. And I'd like to kind of go over those because I find, I find each of them pretty interesting. So the first is that distance off the tee matters more than we previously thought. Right. Yes. And uh, so how did strokes gained reveal that? Yeah. So uh, again, everything with data is in context, right? So people, anybody listening to this podcast, I don't care if you're a scratch golfer or a 20 handicapper, if you can get the ball closer to the green with every single shot that you hit, it's going to make it easier to score. And we now have the data to sort of prove that. The idea of laying up to your perfect wedge number of 100 yards, if you can get it down there to 40, it just doesn't play out over the course of time. Now, it depends what the shot is. Is that 40-yard shot off a down slope over water to a front hole location? Then maybe that that changes the strategy. Again, every single decision needs to be viewed within the context of it. But in the broader sort of scheme of things, this idea that distance was the supreme thing is is it has been proven out in all levels of golf and it really just boils down to if you're 15 yards longer than the guy next to you over the course of a round and that means that if every hole is the exact same length that means that i'm hitting eight iron in and you're hitting you know a hard seven or maybe even having to bun a six every single approach shot like i like my chances against you hitting eight iron over six iron 14 times around or however many times it ends up being that way. Now, the counter to that is, okay, well, what if you're laying back because you want to value fairways? And that's where it gets a little bit murkier in, in, I guess, proving it. But for the most part, you aren't significantly more accurate with whatever that layup club is compared to the driver. And so what the math showed is from a strokes gain off the tee standpoint. So let's say for every time I hit driver to your three wood, I'm gaining a tenth of a shot strokes gained off the tee, right? For the fairway. Say I miss one more fairway than you do by playing that because that's typically what you'll see on the PGA Tour. The difference between the most accurate guy in the PGA Tour and number 100 is effectively one fairway around. And it kind of works that way through all of golf. So if you're 220 handicappers and you both only hit four or five fairways around, why are you laying up? Like, let's try and get those four or five that you are going to hit in the fairway hit with a driver. So back to my analogy there, if I'm gaining a tenth of a shot on you every single time because I'm playing from closer in, then my penalty when I miss that one fairway to yours is maybe three tenths of a shot. Over the course of that round, I'm still gaining on you. And so that's what the data has played out in all of this is that the the farther you get it, the shorter the club in, the shorter the club you have, the better chance of success. You're maximizing the opportunity to get it close. Now, if you hit your three-wood straight every time and you spray your driver 40 yards in every direction and you're counting a million penalty strokes, then this doesn't apply to you and you need to go get fit for a better driver. 
Like, <laughs> like I'm dead serious. Like, there's no reason why that driver should be getting sprayed and the three wood is dead straight. Figure out why that three wood is optimized for your swing and why the driver isn't. And let's figure out how to get that driver pounding down there. But that's where the data has sort of showed it is that you're just putting yourself in an, adv- in an advantageous position. Now, I'll tell you anecdotally from my own game, I'm 41. I've lost some speed on my fastball. I really grinded on my game this summer, and I did start valuing accuracy. I'm not swinging out of my shoes, except on holes where I know I've got a little bit more wiggle room. Like Fairways are still important, but I'm also hitting driver as often as I possibly can because... I know I can miss. I mean, I can miss fairways with my three wood. I can miss fairways with my four iron. I just did it yesterday. I missed a fairway with my four iron trying to lay up. So, I I think that's. I don't like it when people think that the data has said grip it and rip it everywhere. No, what we're just saying is if if there's room out there, hit the driver instead of the three wood, even if it's a little bit more narrow, because that length over time, if you play the long game with the data, is going to pay out for you. All right. So second big takeaway from the strokes gained revolution that you identified is a a shift in mindset about course management. And we've already sort of talked about this, right? One of the, one of the insights that strokes gained has provided is that a lot of the time you're going to want to be aggressive off the tee. Yep. What are some other things or, you know, what is just the kind of even the general philosophy now that, that strokes gained has allowed people to adopt when it comes to deciding on a strategy on a particular hole. Yeah, well, I think at the highest level, because we can see where shots have gone and where guys have scored from, you know, in pre- previous years, why have, have data analysts and stat analysts on their teams now on the PGA Tour? It's changed a lot of that. I think what Strokes Gained has done is, it, it again, it's, it's putting yourself in a position to succeed or effectively minimize your misses the most. The, for the high handicap players, the reason why your scores are so high is because of penalty shots. You know, I mean, obviously the occasional duff or top or something like that. But if you can avoid penalty strokes at all costs, and so a lot of that has to do with aiming. And I know that sounds really simple, but Garrett, how many times do you play around a golf and you just have a boneheaded? I just aimed at the flag and I wasn't even thinking. It happens every single time, and that's what really blows my mind about how good these guys are at the highest level is that they are so focused on the process every time about what their target is, and so. I think what strokes gain has really done is it's validated a lot of one of the a lot of the smart course management that already existed. You know, the Jack Nicholas's of the world who would say, like, I'd aim at the middle of the green and if it was a right hole, I'd you know, I'd try and cut it in there. If it was a left hole, if it turned over fine, even though I like to play, you know, a lot of these guys kind of had that. But what strokes gains has done in making the careers out of a lot of course managers and like Scott Fawcett features predominantly in this book too, because of his system, which is um heavily marketed, but it's not that complex, I think, in a lot of respects, um, because it's just drilled down to that data of finding that correct line to where you're maximizing, or I should say minimizing your failures, right? And he calls it a shotgun pattern or your cone or whatever it might sort of be. And that number or working backwards of where you're going to make the least amount of mistakes has really driven a lot of those decisions in terms of course management. But off the tee, it's definitely said, look, if there's not, if, if there's, if you can't lose a penalty stroke in both directions, right? If there's not, if it's out of bounds left and out of bounds, right? Okay. This is a hard hole. Let's figure out how to keep it, you know, in between the goalposts. But if it's just a lateral hazard left and there's no trouble, right? We're going to aim that sucker a little bit right of center of the fairway, and we're going to swing hard and try and get it close to the green. That's where I think it's changed a lot of the course management stuff. Now, even among experts in this area, 
there is some disagreement about how players should approach a golf course. I I don't want to portray this like there's, you know, one single system that has come out of this. And one particular area of disagreement that you identified was how aggressive players should be in an elite competitive setting where they need to make birdies in order to win, right? Because the question of how can you minimize your risks the most and score the lowest over many, many rounds is a slightly different question from how can you try to win this tournament, right? And and so could you talk about that a little bit? Because I found that really interesting. It's something that I often think about when tournaments are coming down to the wire and players need to make decisions about, you know, is it worth it for me to go for this pin in order to give myself a chance at a birdie and win this tournament? Or should I play a little bit smarter, play how I played the first three days and play to the middle of the green? Right. Two different worlds of golf, right? So I'm a low single digit handicapper. And from my skill level all the way to the top, all of us, if we just hit it at the middle of the green every time, give me a middle number, aim at the middle of the green every time, we're all probably going to score better over the course of time. I mean, that's just fundamentally probably true, right? I mean, it's, should we aim in a couple of pins? Maybe, but the reality is if we can just maximize getting in on greens and two putting and avoiding three putts, we're always going to score better. Now we go to the other end of the spectrum where I'm covering it. And I get in this debate all the time with a lot of guys that feature in this book too, because I've had too many conversations, most of which off the record, sadly, that I couldn't put in this book of talking to the best players in the world who are like, yeah, if I get in a playoff with somebody... I throw all of that strategy out the window or I'm a top 20 player in the world and I'm not worried about losing my card. I go out and I play a little bit different than the guy who's already knows showing up to the golf course in the PGA tour. These maybe two shots worse than Rory McIlroy when they tee off. Like, could he win that week? Yeah, maybe. But if his primary objective is feeding his family and maximizing his earnings and his FedEx cut points every single week, then he's playing a much more strategic game than the guys who are like, I'm out here for blood. Like I'm out here to win. And to that point, that's why, and you and I have had this conversation offline. The most fascinating thing to me right now is psychology. Like honestly, like, cause this stuff to me, it's not black and white. We're humans. Like we're humans playing a sport. And so while you're right over the long term, some of this stuff can happen and be really good. And there's great examples of it. I, I think Keith Mitchell this past year really started taking his course management into um, into his repertoire. And he had his probably best season from a consistency standpoint. He's really focused on the process. But he was just a, a happy-go-lucky guy that was out there swinging shots with natural God-given talent. And now he's honed it a little bit and he's found areas of consistency. Will he win multiple times? I don't know. Like when he gets to the final nine holes, what's going to happen? I always joke on the PGA Tour, there's 63 holes and then there's nine holes. We play 63 holes of all right, figure it out. And then nine holes of, all right, you want to win this thing? Let's go. Let's go. It's go time right now. And crazy things happen on those final nine holes. And that's where I think there's no data for that. That's just, that's just dudes hitting shots. And, and that's, that's where I think the sport gets really fun. And I'm not saying you throw it out the window. They're still aiming in certain places, but no, some of those guys, they've got the cojones. They just say, you know, damn these numbers. Like I'm going at that flag. Give me the number to that flag stick. I'm going at it. Let's go. Do do you think this is an area of golf performance that science just isn't going to be able to touch? Or do you see there being some efforts on the part of scientists to figure, to figure out essentially what 
what the formula to winning is, right? Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the instinct that certain players seem to have to win tournaments, to the the killer instinct that, that you know that we sometimes perceive in in certain golfers. Is that? Do you think that's something that just is always going to remain uh, a mysterious, intangible sort of quality? Yeah, it will always be intangible. the The alpha gene to me is intangible. I mean, we talked earlier about all of Rory McIlroy's stats, but you know, one of the stats that we can't measure this year is his his fu mentality with the live stuff. Like, how much did that motivate him to play better? Now, he said he's been working on things and seeing progress and all the things that he's supposed to say. And I believe him to a point, but like, was twenty twenty two the first real nudge that mature Rory McIlroy has had? that brought out or has inspired some of his best golf can't measure that. And that's what makes sports so much fun to watch. And, and I also wonder if you could ever measure what happened on the last day at the old course to Rory, because it, you know, it was, it was almost like the perfect round to look at from a strokes gained perspective because he did a lot of things, right. You know, he was playing pretty conservative, but he just wasn't really making putts above 10 feet. Right. He didn't he didn't make many big, big putts. But then you could ask, should he have been more aggressive? Right. Should he have been more like Cameron Smith, who came out firing? Right. He was firing at pins. And also Cameron Smith was making big, long putts. I don't know. There were a lot of things going on on that day at St. Andrews that seemed to be psychological or spiritual uh, rather than things that that data could necessarily touch. I wonder if you agree with that. I totally agree with that. And again, statistics will tell you if you hit it outside of 10 feet, you're not going to make it more than half the time. I mean, the 50-50 make rate, and it's in the book, is eight feet on the PGA Tour. I mean, that's for the best players in the world. The 50-50 make rate is from eight feet on putting. So you have to be spectacular just to give yourself a better than average chance of making the putt in the first place and forget the consequence or forget the, the, yeah, the consequences of having 10,000 people pulling along and all that other stuff. I mean, was there more pressure on Roy to win that tournament than Cameron Smith? Absolutely. There was more pressure. So from a psychological standpoint, how does that weigh on him? I thought he played a really good round of golf and he got beat by a spectacular round of golf. And I think I wish I had my log book back. Cause I did, I watched the final round again and I think there were only two shots total in the entire day Garrett where I was really like ooh like that was one where it was a substandard shot or he played too conservatively like two that I really fully questioned like everything else was pretty technical and pretty if if you make one or two putts then we're, we're talking about this a little bit differently but when it was sort of anybody's game but you just got I mean Cam Smith manned up and I mean come on the up and down on 17 like these are the little things where it's like Cam Smith won that tournament. Rory didn't lose it. And to go back and litigate, okay, did did Rory do something that he shouldn't have done, I think is a bit unfair. There's plenty of rounds where that has happened, um, but maybe one or two things changes it a little bit. But Cam Smith just manned up. And he's always been the more aggressive of the two of them as a player. Like Cam Smith, he's almost recklessly aggressive. And his iron game went to another level this year strokes gain data again to where now he had this full complete package to kind of recover from the fact that he's not that great of a driver of the golf ball and he had an amazing season and i wish we could see him more head to head we'll see what 2023 has it's it's kind of crazy but and i wonder if that was our ceiling and did we see the you know that may have been peak cameron smith i don't even know it's a different podcast for a different time but no i don't i don't reflect on that and say that modern analytics cost rory that open um, 
I think that a better player just beat him on that particular day. And there's a lot of intangibles that went into that. And that's the stuff that's the most fascinating to me. And I admire, I like covering sports because I still like the stuff that we can't answer with a formula. Okay. I want to touch on the last takeaway from strokes gain data. And that is a new understanding of the role that putting plays in low scoring in golf. And, and this is one of my, you know, the, one of the main things that I learned specifically from strokes gained, right? The, the, the belief before strokes gained or the common kind of bromide that people would cite would be, you know, drive for show, putt for dough. Putting is the most important thing to work on, you know, and it does have a huge impact on scores, but strokes gain tells us something different about the role that putting actually plays across the course of a, of a player's career, I suppose. And, and what is that? It's that it's the most volatile. So even the best putters have really bad days on the greens. Some of the best ball strikers and drivers, tee to green guys in golf have bad days, but they have far more good days than they do bad days in terms of ball striking. And so, yes, there are some incredible putters and some of them are even in the book sort of talking about their craft. But it it sort of showed that there was so much volatility in it and it was so much more attainable to have good putting rounds or good putting tournaments that it really sort of showed us that it's it's drive for dough. It's not drive for dough. It's ball strike. I'm trying. To, I used to. I coined my own expression once. I'm trying to remember what I, I called it. But it's, <laughs> I've I've thought about this too. It's hard to find one that's as uh, catchy and memorable. It's as like drive, drive yourself show, but... into the bank and then putt your way to the dough. Is kind of <laughs> what it is. Like you have to. You can't survive long term being a bad ball striker and just rely on putting alone. You have to get yourself there, and it's far easier to be consistent with the ball striking and have one or two good putting weeks than it is to have great putting weeks and hope that your ball striking gets you across the finish line when that happens. So there's far more – I mean, Colin Morikawa has won two majors and five times in a young career, and up until – like I think when he won that second major, it was something ridiculous like – he had gained strokes, gained putting in six or seven professional starts, and five of them were wins. So, I mean, just, I mean, it just it blows my mind. Like, he's not a good putter, but he figures it out when it matters the most. And then, conversely, you look at the top putters in the game. And granted, there's some great examples of, of world class Hall of Fame players who are probably top 10, top 20 putters. You know, Jason Day became number one in the world by being the best putter in the world for one year. But that's a fleeting stat. It's going to eventually go away. You're going to have to have something else to sort of lean on. And that's what we've kind of discovered through the years is that there's just way more volatility in putting. And you can't rely on that to be your number one stroke gainer each round, each week, and then over the course of a season. Yeah. So take Denny McCarthy. For instance, putting is not super volatile for Denny McCarthy. He's just he just absolutely holds everything he looks at. If he were as great a ball striker as he is a putter, then he would be probably a top 10 player in the world, right? Oh, easily. I mean, you're talking he's close to a plus one strokes gain putting guy. There's been very few of those. So we're talking about every time he plays a round of golf, he's a shot better on the greens than the field average is effectively what his best seasons have been. And there are very few plus one strokes gain approach seasons. Um, Colin, JT, you know, guys of that ilk who are great iron players are typically there. You put those two together just from irons and putting alone, and you're going to get that. Now, 
there's a little bit of a statistical side to it too. Like Denny McCarthy is also gaining a lot on strokes gained putty because he lags a lot of 40 and 50 footers. Like he doesn't hit it close very often either. And so there's opportunities to gain. He's not missing a lot of putts inside of 10 feet. And so he's got to scramble a lot. He probably gives himself more opportunities to have putt gaining um, opportunities, but I don't really buy into some of that aspect of it. He's that's his one skill and that skill has carried him to the highest level of golf. And he knows that he has to work on the other areas. He knows that he's got to maximize opportunities that he's got to get a little bit tidier and turn some of his 35 footers into 20 footers, you know, per round to do that. He's talked openly about that process of trying to get just incrementally better in those other areas. Um, it's nice having a superpower. I'll say that on the PJ tour, if you can have one superpower, you'll stay out there for a while. And his superpower is still really damn good. But he hasn't won yet. And I mean, you should point that out. Like he hasn't won and he's still the best. And he's he's been the best putter on the PGA Tour for four or five years running. Literally twice was the number one putter and has been a top 10 guy and hasn't won. If you're the number one iron player on tour for five years running, you're going to win. Like you're you're going to win. Yeah. And that, that was, I wasn't clear on the scenario I was setting up. If he were as good a ball striker as he is a putter and he were as good a putter as he is a ball striker, which is, you know, last season he was 148th off the tee and 131st uh, approaching the green. If that were his putting rank and he were instead, you know, second tee to green, then he would be be a a better known. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. So that that just I think that's uh, yeah Corey Connors is a great example not not necessarily a a top ten player but a guy who certainly if he has uh, a few good weeks could suddenly be a top ten player and and Denny McCarthy just has a longer way to go than Corey Connors correct like the mountain is a little bit taller for him to get to the top or I shouldn't even say that the mountain the data golf guys I follow great website you can go and tinker around with it they have expected wins for guys during the course of the year. Like Denny McCarthy's expected wins can be a lot lower during the course of the year than some of those other guys because they're going to put themselves in more positions because that skill is going to give them more opportunities through the course of the season. So he's going to have fewer opportunities, you would think, statistically, probability over time to be able to win because of that. But again, like that's what he's done. That's that's who he is. He has to embrace that also. That's not a that's not a scarlet letter on his chest by any stretch of imagination. It should be a badge of honor for him, and he does wear it that way. But it's – I think even he knows it's difficult. All right. Why don't we find a way to wrap up here? Uh, there's uh, we, We've covered a lot of really interesting ground. Um, I guess what I want to hear you speak to at the end here is just the the kind of skeptical voice that somebody might bring – to your book and that's that science has had a tendency in golf potentially to make things more numbers driven and less artistically driven and to some people that might mean that science has made golf less interesting yes that it has deadened certain aspects of the game now i kind of go back and forth in how i think about this myself but I wonder how you address that kind of skeptical argument about the impact of science on golf. Uh, I address it in, and I actually led in the in the foreword, the introduction to my book about this, is that the beauty of golf is that 
all of us that view it differently of different ages of different skills can all come together and play and enjoy it together. It's one of the few sports where an 80 year old can compete with an 18 year old. We have handicaps, we have different tees, we have different ways of being out there together and playing the game together. Uh, And that in and of itself is beautiful and yet also creates as much friction sometimes in the game as anything, because there's so many different philosophies and how to view the game. I wrote a book on the science of golf I use science in talking about and covering the sport on the professional level. I rarely use it in my own game. Like I've been fit. I get on a launch monitor from time to time. I don't track my own stats. I like to dig it out of the dirt. Um, I like my shirt untucked. I like music on the golf course. (laughs) Does science say that you should tuck your shirt? (laughs) I like seltzer flowing through my veins when I play, which is probably in defiance of chapter three about nutrition and hydration. There's a a number of ways that I just engage in the golf the way that I want to play it. And so I think to the recreational standpoint, there's a million ways that we can all experience golf together where I don't feel, I hope that there isn't that golf is less interesting. Now at the highest levels of professional golf, where there are multi millions of dollars on the table this year, multi billions of dollars on the table. Thank you. Um, <laughs> out there players, managers, agents are going to unearth every single advantage they possibly can for another 1% more here or 1% more there to get to the best. I don't think we can get the cat back in the box or the toothpaste back in the tube when it comes to the highest levels. But I think at the lower levels, the recreational levels, we can enjoy golf however we want to enjoy golf. Um, And I don't really know if it's changed that much. Garrett, I think you always had your pack of guys in the locker room that you liked playing with and the guys in the locker room you didn't like playing with. And even before the revolution that we're in right now in terms of science, you probably were still aligned with how it sort of viewed. So I guess that would be how I would view it. Um, and that I kind of am living a hypocritical life in that I know all of this stuff and I use it as a broadcaster, but I don't really, I'm not all in on it myself as an actual player. Um, and I think that is maybe the answer right there. Like I'm a perfect example of it. Like I, I use this to help broaden my understanding of the professional game but when it comes to me teeing it up and trying to get the best out of my game and having fun with my friends, I have my own sort of comfort level. And I think that, that golf still has plenty of space out there for everybody. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. The book is called The Science of Golf. You can get it wherever you get books. Congratulations. Thanks, Garrett. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was edited by Meg Atkins. The best way to stay up to date on what we're doing at the Fried Egg is to subscribe to our newsletter. It comes out three days a week and has writing from our full staff on a variety of golf topics. We've refreshed the format recently, and in my biased opinion, it's going really well. So go to thefriedegg.com and click subscribe. Thanks for listening.